After the uh, sermon, we're gonna, some of us are going to venture into the deep, mysterious waters of baptism. But until then, we will, as a congregation, continue to wade out into the deep, mysterious waters of the book of Revelation, given to John in the form of visions while he was a prisoner on the island of Patmos. Today we'll be in Revelation chapter 8. After chapter 6, which was a chapter filled with judgments, we looked at chapter 7, and the focus changed from catastrophic judgments that God sent upon the earth to a vision of heaven, to what's happening, on, uh, happening at the same time in, vision, um, in heaven, and we were treated to the great multitude of saints whom God was caring for from every tribe and from every nation. And we were, we were reminded in that chapter that God's people are not just spared a wrath that they do deserve, but they're also given blessings that they don't deserve. And this multitude was in heaven enjoying the glorious presence of God. So, Revelation, the book mostly is a book of judgment, but every once in a while it shifts the camera to what's happening in the heavens. Today in chapter 8, we go back to what's happening on the heavens, but as God's judgment and wrath is once again poured upon the earth. So the good news is that after several chapters, we finally get to see the seventh seal. It's been a long time coming. We finally get to see the seventh seal opened. Uh, The bad news is the seventh seal only opens more judgment. So the seventh seal, when it's open, it opens the seven uh, judgments of the blasts of the trumpet. So for those of you that like or appreciate a good deal, there's seven for one in this passage. So let's just jump right into our text, and I'm going to begin by reading the first five verses of Revelation chapter 8 as we look at eager angels and fiery prayers. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and he filled it with fire from the altar and he threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and an earthquake. Now we're used to heaven being loud. There's always that qualifier. Almost everything that happens in heaven, Scripture tells us you, they, every, the, the angels speak loud, the commands are loud, trumpet blasts are loud, everything that happens And yet, in this passage, every once in a while in Revelation, and this is a rare occasion, there is silence. Uh, John looked at his Apple Watch. He estimated about 30 minutes of silence in this busy, commanding, authoritative place around the throne of God. Now, why is there silence in heaven? Silence in heaven is seldom to signify 
peace. It's not the God leading us beside still waters and, and the green pastures. Silence in the book of Revelation in heaven, because of all that's going on, is often just to add to the real life drama. You know, there are times in life when things happen and jaws drop and you're almost speechless. So the silence is because you're almost speechless at what the next thing is that's going to come. So silence in heaven kind of builds this anticipation. In the earlier chapters, we were presented with this incredible, mysterious scroll that was sealed seven times, which means it's very important. And a loud, commanding voice went out to the entire universe from an angel, said, who is worthy to open the scroll? And what happened? It was silence. You know, so all of the universe is waiting. We know this is a message. We know it has something to do with the redemptive plan of God. And no one makes a peep. And so there's silence and the anticipation just builds in the drama. And then finally, the Lamb comes who is worthy to open the seal. So in this case, we have the seventh seal. It's opened and it's almost like jaws drop when they see what is about to be released for the seventh seal as God's plan unfolds. And the idea is constantly as we read this book, I mean, what could be next? What could possibly be jaw-dropping or worse than what we've already read about when it comes to the fierce wrath of God upon sinners? More judgment? I mean, how can it get any worse? And it's kind of like the idea, if you thought those judgments were bad, wait until you see the next ones that will come out. Now, it's worth pointing out that uh, the seventh judgments of the trumpets have some similarities that we have observed with the seven seals. And that is the first four come hard and fast, and then the fifth one slows down, and then again you'll have this interlude where the camera shifts from the catastrophes of earth back into what's happening in the heavens. We'll see this in chapter 8. And so there are some similarities here. You'll recognize these as we continue to read. Um, but it's not exactly the same. So after this kind of edge of the seat opening of the seventh seal, we see seven angels standing before the Lord. Seven is a number of perfection. And the idea is here you see seven eager angels ready to perfectly execute whatever the will of God is. Whatever God commands them, tells them, to do, they are eager and ready to perfectly execute that. They're standing before him at attention, if you will. They're just very eager to obey any orders from the throne of God. And that's how it works, especially we see in the book of Revelation. We just see this chain of authority. We see the superior God and these eager servants, the angels, stand before him waiting for any word. You know, kind of like, put me in, coach, put me in, coach is the idea here. So that's, that's heaven's perspective. Everything answers to God. Even the great heavenly beings that God created, as mysterious as they are, the cherubim, the seraphim, the angels, and so forth, they all are accountable and answer to God, some of them very willingly, and some, as we will see, 
not so joyfully, but because they have to. To give a classic example of how this chain of authority or how things work in heaven and then play out on earth, I want to turn back to a passage in Job that uh, Corky preached on in my absence at the first Sunday in July. Because it just gives us this, this vision again, this scene of, of the beings in heaven and how they operate before the Lord, Lord and who calls the shots. So let me um, take you to the book of Job. I think it's the first chapter beginning in verse 6. So now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So again, you have this vision. Now this is a, uh, a book of, of wisdom literature. And it's one of the oldest books in the Bible. And the sons of God, which in this case are angels, the angels present themselves before the Lord. That's how things work. And Satan also comes among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, and he said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? You have blessed them, but, you, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. That's the first uh, 6 through 12 in the first chapter of Job. So you see angels, the way things work in the heavens and are played out on earth is that the angels are presenting themselves before God. They're accountable uh, to God. They stand at attention in, the, in His vicinity. And the good angels are joyful and willing and very eager to do whatever God desires them to do because uh, they're not tainted by sin. They know that all God's ways are good. And so whatever he tells them, it's going to just be wonderful in one way or another. Now, Satan is a fallen angel. And he, but he also has to present himself before God. It's not like I, he can rebel from God and therefore he's completely on his own because God created all things. Satan is a created being. And just because any creature rebels against God doesn't mean that we're not still very, very accountable to God. So Satan is accountable to God because God is his superior. So I can't say that he joyfully and willingly presents himself before the Lord. It's probably more because, well, I got to. You know, he, he's the boss. I hate to admit it, but he's the boss. And from this text, we see that God, in the heavens, he's put a hedge around the greatest man in the east. He really has. This is his work. Now, whether that hedge is the work of angels that he's dispatched to, to uh, keep Job safe and prosperous, we, we're not told. But it is the will of God and the word of God that causes this to happen. He takes credit for it. Yes, I have put this hedge around him. 
you also see that it's God that removes that hedge. And he allows Satan to work and move within the borders of the hedge that he has uh, put around him. And eventually, Satan wipes him out. He removes things. He takes from him things that God has blessed him with. He takes his livestock. He destroys the land. And eventually, he even destroys the family. Now, Job is on earth. He doesn't know about this this conversation that's happening in the heavens. So I'm, I'm, I'm making reference to this because this is similar to what we have to deal with when we read about what happens in the heaven in the book of Revelation. And I know that some of it's symbolic, but it's symbolic, well, a lot of it is, but it's symbolic of something real. Now, Job's down on earth. He doesn't know about this revelation or this conversation. All he knows is that he's getting one messenger with bad news after another. And finally, he's wiped out, even stricken with disease to the point where he's scraping himself with a potsherd. That's gross. That's severe disease. He is absolutely miserable. Now, had he been let into what's happening in the heavens, he might have been saying, oh, I can hear you down here. I don't like that idea. No thanks. I'm just fine like I am. But he was not given a say. There are things that happen in the heavenly realms with God and the angels that are before him. All Job knows, this is happening to me, and he has to lean on his theology. As Corky said, there's a lot he doesn't know, so he goes back to what he does know. We're not always given privy to the great plan and the unfolding redemptive works of God. We can only go on what we know. Now, it's obvious that Job had a deep faith in God. So he pulls that. I know that God's good. I know that He's in control. I know that He's sovereign. He says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That's acknowledging the sovereignty of God over His life. Everything that I have that is good is from Him. And I don't understand this pain and suffering. And I'm miserable, but my Redeemer lives. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, he pulls on what he knows about the character of God rather than zeroing in on all of the unknowns of what's happening there with him on earth. So he's interpreting heaven's uh, events and heaven's plans from an earthly perspective based on his theology, which comes from the revelation of God. Now, I think about Revelation, our book. I even think about the book of Job in that scene. I thought, how would, our, how would today's world interpret something like that? Now see, Job's interpreting these events as from the hand of God, come what may. Now, how would our modern day interpret Job's events more or less than, say, judgments that may come through the ages and different generations from God based on what's happening in heaven? Uh, Would we explain it away? Would we even tie it to the hand of God in any way? Would we acknowledge that that must be the hand of God? I have to wonder if, you know, the, the, the riches, well, that's just because he's a financial genius. Uh, the land that he owns, well, he just knows how to work the land. He's a man of agriculture. All the servants he has, that's just because uh, he just gives them good benefits. You know, it's that, that package and that retirement 
package that he has, you know, everybody wants to, to work for him. The livestock, you know, he's a, he's a zoologist. He just can see animals and he knows and he, he breeds them right and so forth. I mean, there, there could just be all of these earthly explanations for why Job was the greatest man in the East. And yet if we had a great man in the East today that underwent the same kind of things, how would the world look at it and interpret it? Would it be connected at all to the divine hand of God? Now this is important because what's happening in this book of Revelation and what's thrown on earth is connected to the divine hand of God. The good that comes, the judgments that come, it's all his plan. And we have to deal with it based on our theology, based on what we know about God and what we know is given to us in this holy, sacred, inerrant book we call the Bible. Now, when Satan plagues Job, just for gee whiz sake, notice some of the things that he does because it's very similar to what we read about in Revelation. You know, war, uh, uh, the marauders come and they overtake the servants of Job and they take some away and they steal the livestock and so forth. So you have war, then you have tornadoes, you have wind, you have storms that come and just blow buildings over. And then you have family members that are killed. So it's, it's this, this, and then even disease because um, Job is stricken by some kind of disease. So these are the, the kind of things that happen. In a small scale like this example of Job is happening on a larger scale as we read the book of Revelation. And what comes to my mind as I think about all of this You know, Jesus tells us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So when we pray that prayer, we're praying that the things that we're reading about, that we see in Job, the things that we're reading about in Revelation, some have already happened, some will happen, and some are to come. When we pray that prayer, We are asking kingdom things to happen on earth. And some of those kingdom things that we're praying when we pray that prayer, we're reading about in the book of Revelation. So in a sense, if it's God's will for sin to be punished and for judgment to come, then we are praying that to happen here on earth as it is in heaven. That's the the, uh, the narrative that we live in and live with. So you see all of this dynamic. We're very much a part of it. It's not so far removed as we might think. So I use this just as an example because we see in Revelation constantly angels are dispatched in one way and now they're good and bad to... uh, We'll get to the bad angels in in the chapters to come. But good and bad are unleashed by God to fulfill His will. He is still in the command center of the throne room of heaven and everything that happens, even the things that leave us scratching our heads, we don't understand the tragedy, we don't understand the pain, we don't understand the mystery, but what we do know is that God is really smart. He's omniscient. And we were reminded this morning in Sunday school that every judgment He makes is perfect. 
all the mysteries that surround the life of Job and all the loss that he experienced, God executed that in perfect judgment. There was not a thing wrong. It was absolutely impeccable when he did that. So I think our task is similar to Job's because we're here on earth and we don't always get to hear all the conversation. And that is just to be a man and a woman of faith. Just to hold on to God and cling to what we know about God based on what He's revealed to us. To stand firm through riches, through poverty, through sickness, through health, through all the life-shattering things that may come our way. We want to just hold on to the goodness of God because we know in one way or another He has us. Now you'll remember that this book opens the first three chapters with Jesus' encouragement and exhortation to the churches, the seven churches. Now He rebukes some of those churches for their sins. But all the churches in their encouragement were to basically stand firm. I see what you're doing. I see your faith. I see your good works. Keep doing that. Stand firm no matter what comes your way. Whether it's riches or poverty. Whether it's sickness or health. Stand firm. Live for me. And die for me. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain the foundations of the world. So that is a glimpse of what's happening here. Now when we get back to our, our seven angels, in order for them to execute what God has in mind, they're given seven trumpets here. Now trumpets can signify different things in Scripture and even in our own world. You know, I think about the, the shofar, the trumpet that, The Israelites blew when they surrounded Jericho. It's a new thing God's doing. They're coming in. They're taking over the promised land. And God instructs them to surround Jericho. And they they shout. Trumpets are blown and they shout. And that's a victory. But trumpets are also used for other purposes. And I don't think this is a new beginning purpose. I think this is more of like a war purpose. Because trumpets are utilized for the sake of giving commands and signals um, for soldiers in the midst of a war. And in this case, and a lot of times in Old Testament, the the trumpet blasts uh, in reference to some kind of doom or the day of the Lord when He comes and executes His wrath. Here's an example. Zephaniah 1, 14-17. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements so this is a trumpet call for here come the troops you are under siege you know today we don't use that at least our military i don't think i'm not aware that we use the trumpets uh for 
uh, war anymore. I think it's more like shortwave radio. We even have uh, earpieces, you know, getting commands from the, the command center. Um, but they were very much used in war. A different trumpet blasts uh, meant different things. So you had uh, reveille, which means time to get up, basically, right? Taps, which basically means it's time to settle down and go to sleep. I'm sure there's a, there are um, trumpet blasts for charge and trumpet blasts for retreat. My favorite's not the trumpet blast. My favorite is the dinner bell that says, come and get it. But they were used for these. Everybody needed to know that the, the bugle sounds. And so this one's associated with war and distress and, and darkness and constant, relentless siege. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, there's a trumpet blast that we are to encourage each other to listen out. That's the trumpet blast we want to hear. It's the coming of the Lord where we we will rise up with Him and spend eternity with Him. So then, as if there's not enough angels in heaven, we're introduced to yet another angel. This one comes and he has a censer. He's given a censer. A censer is just a tool Uh, In that day for worship, they would put uh, incense in it. They would burn things in it. It was used in the temple of God to worship worship Him. And it says that this angel was given much incense. So this is filled. There's a lot of uh, fierce burning going on here in this censer before the Lord. And this incense has to do, it's mingled in with the prayers of the saints. And so what we have is the prayers of the saints, and we've mentioned this before, incense is used kind of as a metaphor. It gives us the picture that you have this sweet aroma from the incense, but also you have the smoke rising into the nostrils of God, if you will. This pleasing aroma. And then you have these these prayers of the saints, and it's much incense. There's a lot of fervent, fiery prayers going on here before the Lord. Now in an earlier chapter, we saw the saints under the altar in the throne room of God. And they were crying out to the Lord for justice, that their their blood has been spilled. God, when will you avenge us and also the others that will die for your name's sake? And God said, not yet. I will not answer that prayer yet because more blood needs to be spilled. But you get the idea here in this passage where the prayers, the fiery prayers are coming up and God says the time has come because the the ashes from the incense and the prayer are hurled down back to the earth in the form of the judgment that awaited the people there. And of course, no judgment would be complete without peals of thunder, rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake, which we read about so frequently in this book. And then we see the four trumpet blasts in verses 6 through 12. Let's take a look at those. Now the seven angels 
who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. First angel blew his trumpet, and there were followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. What a beautiful name. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the light and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then, as if threes are not enough, there's three woes, which we'll get to next time. I'll save those for later in verse 13 of that chapter. So in one sense, as you can see, it's more of the same. It's, it's cosmic upheaval. It's descriptions of how God will upend people's lives, how He will uh, utilize nature as a tool. The, the, the land is affected, the water, the air, the sea, even the skies are affected in these judgments. And there's no need to rehash the symbolism in all of these because we're familiar with all of this by now. But I want to make a few observations about this passage. Uh, first, we need to know that there are no less than three popular interpretations when we, when we talk about these judgments of the seven seals, seven trumpets, and then we'll be treated to the seven bowls a little bit later. And some believe that all of the judgments that we've been reading about will happen in the future at the end times. God will save them and unleash them at the end. Another interpretation is that they will be unleashed at different... Uh, Another interpretation is that actually it's the same judgment, but it's described in three different terms. In this way, he describes the seals and then trumpets and then bowls, but it's all the same event that's happening. Another interpretation says these are the judgments of God that are spread out that earth experiences between the advents, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And we see throughout different generations, throughout different times, we see famines, we see disease, we see war, we see hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, all of these different things that happen and they will continue to happen to a different degree throughout the ages until the Lord returns. Uh, I personally lean towards that interpretation that the, that the judgments of God are just kind of unleashed as God decides they need to be unleashed upon the earth to accomplish His redemptive, redemptive purposes. And so we will continue to see things. There, they've been in the past. We're aware of history. We know about wars. We know about catastrophes. You know, we, we are uh, constantly warned about the warming climate and that our earth is going to burn and we're all going to 
uh, melt anyway and different things. There's impending doom upon us. So I believe that these judgments will come um, in different ways, different times, different generations until the Lord comes back. You know, the trick the tricky thing is attaching what judgment goes to what earthly event. Like, what exactly did the world war means? World wars mean? Well, they were very significant in God's redemptive plan and things happened. Same thing with the towers and 9-11 in our day. But tying them to exact judgments and why, that's where we need to be very, very careful regarding what God is doing. Second thing I want to point out is these judgments, as we will read, are executed um, as a result of strong rebellion against God on the earth. When we get in chapter 9, we'll read this. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So these trumpet blasts, these wraths, are aimed at the godless, ungodly. Now, of course, the purpose is to get their attention so that they will repent. But even under these kind of catastrophic atrocities thrown from heaven to earth, you still have mankind with a hard heart saying no to God and doing whatever they please and whatever is right in their eyes. If you can believe it when we read these descriptions, how can anybody withstand uh, the, the, the pleas from God to save themselves from the wrath to come and yet man's heart is so hard? We're not used to seeing that. In our world, we believe that we're just basically good. We're really, really good creatures. We don't bring harm to anybody. But you don't see this in Scripture. That even in the midst of circumstances like this, you see people who absolutely refuse to acknowledge God. Whereas the purpose of judgments is to wake us up so that we will be spared from the wrath to come. Uh, the third thing I want to point out here is it's very obvious there's a lot of one-third statements. A third of this, a third of that, a third of this. There's many, many, I think about 12 of them in this passage. And, and basically what that means is um, this is not the final blow. It's not like and everything was wiped out was just a third here and a third here. So it's not the coup de grace. It's not the final blow of the final judgment. These are just... Um, uh, samplings, I guess, if you will, of things to come. So large areas are afflicted, but not all of them. So it really leaves us with the question, asking, well, wait a minute, if it's just a third, then you meet, does that mean there's more to come? So also, I want to note here that we want to make sure that we read this as symbolism, because there are some that read these passages and they try really hard to Interpret these as literal, literal events, and I think it gets really nonsensical when we try to do that. You read these descriptions. Just for, for one example, when you talk about one-third of the sun being darkened, like how does that work in real life? 
Now, symbolically, it makes perfect sense to me because I could even just imagine that it's like you take an angel and he's up there with this huge blanket and he just blacks out one-third of the sun and then another one blacks out you know, one-third of the moon. So symbolically, it like makes sense and it would have a very limited effect on the earth. But in real life, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, if you block out a third of the sun, we die. It's not like it's just, well, those people are cold on this part of the earth, but they, they still get to be warm. You know, creation is all connected. And even the global economy is all connected for that matter because if you wipe out the seas in one-third of the world, you know, we, we depend on different parts of the world to get our heating oil, to get f- different kinds of foods and grains and medicines and everything. We're very, very connected and global these days. So it's not quite as isolated or ni- nice and neat as um, what we might think. Now, it, it, it is that way symbolically, but not so much in real life. And it's also, I think, important as we wind down to think about, you know, things like this have already happened. And we read about these strange phenomenon of of darkness and and earthquakes, even in Scripture. And let me just give you an example. When Christ died in Luke 23, 44, it was now about the sixth hour. And of course, you know, he's, he's on the cross. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. So I don't know how that would be symbolically described, but in real life when Jesus was on that cross and died for three hours, that locality experienced some kind of real-life darkness. Now, God in the heavens, He's calling the shots. Things are working out. Angels are being dispatched, but on the earth, this is what you would see if you looked into the sky or if you beheld the cross of Christ. I don't know exactly if that was like, was it an eclipse? Was it a a great big cloud that eclipsed part of the sun? I mean, we have that here. It's dark here today because of the clouds that block the sun. We don't know, but these things happen and we experience them on earth. And as well, as there was an earthquake, the ground shook, uh, Matthew tells us, and even people came out of the tombs. But if, if you just forget about the supernatural part and look at there was an earthquake here. In a a locality. So the earth is shaken. Uh, The sun does go dark. There are times in our world where these things happen. Uh, Peter in Acts says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor and smoke. He's quoting scripture. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So how you work the, the partial, you know, does the sun have three light bulbs and you turn one off and so there's two shine? However that works, it will be experienced in a real way on our earth. So I want to close with this. As we think about the example in Job and as we think about the book of Revelation, what we've read and the things to come. I don't think we can hear this enough because in our advanced society, we have this false sense and security that we are in control. Like we, uh, we, we have advanced so far technologically like FedEx says the world on time. Like I can get your package 
anywhere in the world and I can do it on time. That's amazing. Like that, is, that just blows my mind that we can do that. We've, we've, we're so advanced. And so all these advancements cause us to think, well, we can handle that. If this comes, we, science will take care of that and so forth. And God, any power that we have has just been given to us by God. It's just a gift. Yes, you may have this knowledge. Yes, you may have this capability. I'll bless you with this. I'll bless you with that. But we should never, ever think that we are in charge as if we're on the throne and we call the shots. Because God does that. So I like how revelation humbles me. I like how it, it teaches me to look to God to all things. And even when I pray, and I pray, I pray uh, the Lord's Prayer every night, it's kind of scary when I say the words, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because I don't know the conversations taking place in heaven. And it makes me wonder how many times has God answered a prayer that I prayed every night and He's bringing His kingdom into my life on earth and I'm not liking it. And it's hurting me. And I don't even realize it's an answer to prayer. God is mysterious. And the reason He sends His wrath is so that we will run to Him as our escape. He is the just and the justifier of the ungodly. Not only does He send the wrath, but He sends the lifeboat in the midst of the wrath that we might have faith in Him, believe in Him, trust Him so much that we give Him our whole heart, we give Him our whole life, we give Him our whole mind. Now that's why we are here. And that's why we were created to worship the supreme sovereign God. May God bless the preaching of His Word.